0: Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Crampton, Chief Economist with the Initiative. And today we're going to be talking about a fun combination of econometric geekery and freedom of speech. So with us today, we've got Professor Arthur Grimes. Arthur is at Vic uni as well as Matu. He's recently published with some co- excellent co-authors work looking at the value of freedom of speech. Also with us today, we've got Dr. Michael Johnson, formerly a VicUni, with us now in education, but also very interested in freedom of speech issues. Welcome, Arthur.
1: Uh, hi, Eric. Great to be here.
0: Excellent. So what got you interested in ta- taking this project on in the first place?
1: Two things. One is professor of well-being and public policy. So I want to look at what are the drivers of well-being, and especially with the public policy Background, and there's some research internationally that says that various freedoms, uh, human rights, etc., like that, are important for people's well being. People like John Halliwell, a very famous economist from the University of British Columbia, has, has looked at that. But no one had really looked at the importance of free speech per se on well being. And then I had a very good graduate student at Victoria University, Diana Vilman Tam, who wanted to do a master's project in this area. And so together we worked on that. And then one of my colleagues at Motu, Nicholas Watson, helped me complete the project along to get it to publication.
0: I should mention now that the three of us are co-authors, but any comments today are just my own. Excellent. Thank you. So broadly speaking, okay, this is an international study, great big panel of data, so lots of countries over lots of years where there have been lots of changes in freedom of speech across these different countries. So tell us a little bit about the data, how you're looking at this, and broadly speaking, what you're finding.
1: Yeah, so we have got two different data sets for well-being and two different data sets for measuring freedom of speech and other human rights. So it gives us four data sets all altogether once we put them together. The longest data set we have is covers almost four decades, and that's for the World Values Survey. and that covers 90 countries overall. And then within each of those countries we normally have about a, a thousand people surveyed within each of those. So roughly 300,000 observations of individual views. And then the second set of well-being data is the from the Latino barometer which is 19 countries over roughly two decades. And, of course, Latin American countries change their freedom of speech quite frequently, so there's quite a lot of variation there. Again, roughly 1,000 people surveyed each time. And then we have two human rights and free speech databases. One is called C-Rights, which has been a long-running measure of freedom of speech and human rights, and that's just a very simple measure of free speech, which is basically two is complete freedom of speech, one is partial freedom of speech, and zero is complete absence of free speech. And then we also have a second set of freedom of speech data and human rights data from what's called VDEM, which is an institute in Sweden, which is a much more nuanced measure of of free speech, et cetera.
0: I guess before we get on to the results, how did New Zealand fare in these var- various studies? So where did we rank? Are we presumably we're among the f- more countries with more freedom of speech compared to some of the ones that you were talking about earlier?
1: Yeah, New Zealand is a two right through the Sea Rights database. So we've complete freedom of speech right through that period. I mean, we've had periods in our history where that's not the case, where there's been government restrictions on freedom of speech. But since in the last 40 years or so, that has been considered free speech. And in
0: VDEM, it's near the top as well. So I guess these are fairly coarse measures then, because New Zealand has always seemed to, or at least in the time that I've been here, it seemed to be a fair bit different than the United States in terms of how it views freedom of speech, rest- potential restrictions on them. We have a chief censor's office, for example, which doesn't exist in the United States. There's a possibility of books being considered to be just objectionable, and you can go to prison for having them. And in the United States, that doesn't really happen so much. So I guess these are sort- fairly broad categories. What do you have to do to sort of flip from a Category 2 country to a Category 1 country, or vice versa?
1: Yeah, there's obviously measures that they look at, that the people who compile these databases look at. Generally, it's if there's some greater restriction on freedom of speech. Canada, for instance, at one stage went from a two to a one, and I don't know exactly why that's the case. It could be to do with the Quebec language laws, where it's illegal to post signs, for instance, in English, etc. so that would be regarded as an abrogation of freedom of speech. Interestingly, in New Zealand, we had an example at the time of the Rugby World Cup, where it was illegal to place advertisements for certain products near a rugby stadium, which would be a situation of curtailment of freedom of speech, but that wasn't sufficient in these measures to reduce our measure from a 2 to a 1. So I guess that sort of shows where the bars lie.
2: It's probably worth noting as well that neither of those examples are abrogations of political or politically motivated speech.
1: No, that's right. Maybe the Canada, Canadian one is a little bit more in a, in a sense. If you're a you know a Canadian <laughs> yeah. French Canadian party, it might be considered that. But no, certainly the New Zealand example is not. Whereas, of course, going back to the 1951 waterfront strike, there was absolute you know curtailment of freedom of speech at that time, explicitly by law. So and we have had times when people were not allowed to voice support, for instance, for striking
2: for strikers at that time. And we could probably point to just about every country that we now think of as free. During wartime, there are restrictions like that. That's
1: right, and today, of course, there's still restrictions on against you know treason and support of terrorism and those sorts of things. So and, and, th- these and things and threatening th- with violence and yeah, so on. Absolutely. Yeah. So th-
0: there are some judgments that have to be made through these calls. Yeah. New Zealand legalized sedition some time ago, and I'm not sure that Canada has. So maybe one up for us there. But I think that the major events legislation that you're alluding to is still in place and will continue to be invoked for. The various major events that come in, they're part of the sponsorship deals. Those could affect political speech to the extent that, like, you could imagine some protester putting up a banner that has sponsors' logos that have been altered in some way to make a political statement and those running afoul, potentially, of the major events legislation. So I think it goes a little bit beyond just sponsor rights protection and more into potentially abrogating political speech, but within the grand scheme of things in the world that you've been looking at, so far New Zealand is within bounds for greater freedom of speech.
1: Yeah, if you you could do it on a score of 0-1-2, I think it's quite
2: legitimate that New Zealand's a 2. Quite. (laughs) Well, perhaps we should come to your results. So I think there were two kind of main findings. Could could you let us know about those?
1: Yeah, well, we had two different hypotheses when we were looking at this to start with. Is free speech uh, essentially a luxury good? That essentially the rich and the well-educated etc. will highly prioritise and that would be consistent with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, that if you're poor and etc. you're so wor- busy worrying about putting food on the table and getting shelter etc. the last thing you want to think about is free speech, so if you're asked to prioritise it, would you prioritise free speech highly or not? Now in the World Values Survey there is a question where people are asked to state their priorities on certain options, one of which is freedom of speech. and they're asked to put their first and second option and So it turns out when we look at who prioritises free speech when they're asked, it's essentially the people who have high incomes or high education levels that say they really prioritise free speech. Now that's not too surprising perhaps because one of the choices in there, for instance, that they were asked to rank against was cost of living. So, you know, people who are at the poor end are going to say, well, cost of living is most that's important. Bit of a worry. Uh, whereas yeah. people like me, you know, are going to say, well, free speech is important. So that's sort of consistent with Maslow's hierarchy of needs.
2: Do you think there's also a, an element of people from countries that are not free and also not prosperous not really understanding what is meant by free speech? I mean, if they've grown up in a political culture where it doesn't really exist, and certainly they have material worries, but. Do you think that it's actually possible that they don't know what you're talking about when they ask if you, if you value free speech?
1: It's possible. We found other predictors of whether people prioritise free speech highly were the countries they live in, so people in the West, if you like, you know, North America, Western Europe, Australasia, are more likely to rank free speech highly than people in other parts of the world. And having said that, you know, students are more likely to highly prioritise free speech as well as people who are well off, and students aren't well off, so that's an interesting, interesting one. People who are not religious are more likely to prioritise free speech, and people on the left of the political spectrum traditionally have been more likely to prioritise free speech. That one might come
2: as a little bit of a surprise to some people in New Zealand at present, given the present centre-left government's attempts to bring in hate speech legislation and the like, and, and perhaps you know some of the debates about academic freedom centering on issues that are arguably beloved of the left and, and censorship of views of people like Don Brash at Massey University and so on. How do you account for that within your findings?
1: Well, this is covering 300,000 people over, sure. <laughs> over 40 years, not yeah. rather, rather than just a few peculiarities in the, in the current situation in New Zealand. But I think it's, you know, if you think back over history, free speech has generally been much more prioritised on the left of politics than on the right. The right has tended to be more authoritarian. But I think what it suggests is that a simple left-right split is probably not so useful, that we've often thought about a left-right split on economic issues and a sort of authoritarian-liberal split, which might be in a completely different axis than the economic split. So I think what we're probably seeing is that there are, people who would be regarded as left or right, but they're liberal in the, in the sense that they support freedom of speech and, and other liberties. And that would be very much, say, like a 19th century John Stuart Mill had, yeah. had that view, for instance, with the marketplace for ideas. And
2: then there are others who are authoritarian, either on the left or on the right. Yeah. I think there's a, there's possibly another explanation for this, sli- what you call, I think, an anomaly in the, or, you know, in the New Zealand context, it's actually probably more widespread, at least across the Anglosphere. We've, we've certainly seen in the UK and the US and Canada similar kinds of arguments about restriction of, of speech in the name of social justice and the like. And I wonder if it's not part of a broader move. And and I guess this is in the realm of speculation. It's, it can't be nailed back to your data. But,
0: but well, it can be in a different way, right? So if your underlying hypothesis is that the left started out pro-free speech because they saw this as benefiting marginalized communities and the oppressed and those who needed protection. And if that overall hypothesis has changed on the left, that they're seeing free speech more as a threat to marginalized communities, they're people who are harmed by speech rather than protected by freedom of speech protections. A left liberal kind of we need to protect people from oppression view is that if speech is oppressive, then you need, restrictions on speech to protect them. And that gets directly to the empirical question that you're asking. So you're asking then on the World Values Survey, how does people's well-being vary with their experienced freedom of speech? So let's get yep. to the results. Okay,
1: so that's the second part we looked at is one one is the actual, what is the effect on people's well-being, which we measure of by subjective well-being. People are asked about the quality of their life as a whole. And then we relate that to changes in free speech across countries, across across time. And what we find there very clearly is that free speech benefits most those who are at the bottom of the socioeconomic spectrum rather than at the top. So people with low incomes or low education are the ones who benefit most when, when countries change there to
2: enhance free speech. So in other words, if a country improves its free speech situation, the socioeconomic well being of those close to the bottom improves subsequently. Is that the finding?
1: Correct. And we can't say that's necessarily causal. It could be just happening at the same time, but it's, you know, it's happening across the oh, world. controlling so for it, a lot it, of factors. It's
2: the same time rather than subsequently then, is it? Well
1: put it this way. If free speech goes up, people's well being at the bottom, people at the bottom their well being goes up and stays up. Right. Uh, so what but what we you know, we control for all sorts of other things: changes in human rights at the same time, changes in economic outcomes at the same time, all sorts of other things that we're, that we're controlling for. And it's it's a very you know, it's a very strong result. Yeah. And it doesn't matter whether we measure it by income or or education; it's it seems to be the same sort of thing. So what we're hypothesizing there is that. It's if, if you're people who are educated, you're mixing with the elites, you're mixing with the decision makers, etc., or you've got the money to influence them, you don't need free speech as much to get your way, to get things changed you know, for your benefit. Yes. But if you're at the bottom of the heap in the socioeconomic terms, you don't have those networks, you don't have the money, the only way you can really get things to change to your benefit as if you have freedom of speech, as if you can go out there and protest, or your union can protest on your behalf, or your, you know, workplace can make it a, a case, you know, your social group can make a case, etc. So it's those people who are at the bottom who really need free speech more than the people at the top, and so they benefit more by having changes to free speech that enhance free speech.
2: And I think there are great theoretical reasons, and you've outlined some of them to to think that that would be the causal direction. Just to be devil's advocate for a minute, though. Might it be the case also that if well-being increases, especially for those at the bottom, they're moving up that hierarchy of needs, and so now they've put political pressure on to get more freedom of speech because they start to value it higher? Is that a plausible argument too?
1: Well, yeah, we, we can't look at that directly, but one of the things we do find interestingly is that people who say they value free speech when they're asked also do better when free speech improves relative to those who say they don't value free
0: speech. So there is something sort of consistent with what you're saying there. Yeah, I'm guessing that there's not enough international mobility within your data set that we would worry about selection issues. Is that the case or is it something? I guess I'll, I'll step back. What do I mean by that? Suppose that I care a lot about free speech and I think things are turning sour. Maybe you're going to want to move to a place that has lots of free speech and then there's a big bundle of things that have made me happier than in the last survey. I'm not sure that these track people across countries. Is there enough mobility in this data set that we need to worry about this? Or is it something that we can well, just leave to one side? Yeah, we
1: don't track whether people are migrants or not. So whether people have migrated to countries with greater free speech. So we can't answer it on the basis of the study. One other study, which I've been involved in with Dennis Wesselborn from the University of Otago, showed that people's migration choices are affected to some extent by subjective well-being overall. If you see a country where not just because it's got higher incomes, but also people seem happier, you're more likely to move to that country. So there is a possible situation where people who value free speech are moving to countries with free speech. And of course, we see that amongst refugees to some extent.
0: Of course. A decade ago in a prior life, one of the last thesis projects that I'd supervised when I was at Canterbury, we ran a gravity model on international migration across massive number of country pairs. And so... A a gravity model basically says that you're more likely to move to a country that's close to you than the one that's really, really far away and that there's trends in in those distances. We're looking to see the extent to which differences in civil liberties, including freedom of speech and including economic liberties, whether those affected people's migration decisions. And there it looked like people were only viewing economic freedom instrumentally. So they, they would see differences in GDP per capita, differences in expected incomes, and that would drive people and the only way that economic freedom affected things was through the effects on income, but civil liberties, like freedom of speech, were entering directly, and people were trying to move to freedom. One of the problems that you'd have then in a lot of your Latin American data is they just aren't allowed to move to the places that have more freedom of speech, right? You try getting into the United States, and they just won't let you come in.
1: Yeah, that's right. These things can be quite, quite difficult, but that, yeah, certainly your findings there are very consistent with what Dennis and I found in our previous study that you know, people do want to move to places that are both richer, should have greater economic freedoms often, but also to places where subjective well-being is higher. And then on the basis of this, we're saying, well, subjective well-being is likely to be higher, caris paribus, other things equal, in places with free speech. So it's all consistent, I think.
2: One of the things you discuss in the paper, which I, I really enjoyed, was the comparison between markets as a way of calculating prices and an open market and ideas as a way of getting the best ideas to come to the fore and refining correct ideas to be even better and more robust and so on. And I think I think there's a, a lot in that. And I've been thinking about it as well in respect of the more rarefied notion of academic freedom. I'm a scientist by training, and certainly I think of science in that way as well, that, that you have ideas come out and and as they're processed by scientists they're argued about and so on with a highly skeptical mindset the the ideas get very refined and it occurs to me that a way of thinking about that is if you have a big network with lots of information flowing through it freely then the the state of that network is going to more closely resemble reality than if you have artificial strictures on how information can, can flow through it. And we might think, for example, of a dictatorship where you might have a network of people who are talking about things, but if it's cut off from the executive, the people who are making the decisions, it's not, it's not going to result in good things. And maybe we've seen an example of that in Russia over the last few days with some fairly unexpected events there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know the whole idea of the marketplace for ideas, John Stuart Mill's sort of famous phrase from the nineteenth century, is a is a wonderful way of thinking about the importance of freedom of expression. And now, you know, interestingly, some economists have challenged that to some extent, and and they tend to be from the law and economics fraternity, Coase and Posner, who said, well, we regulate other parts of the free market, so. You know why shouldn't we regulate free speech when if if there are certain negative outcomes from that? I mean they're still very very careful not to regulate it very much, but you know they sort of pose a question mark. And I suppose that's why we have laws against you know support of treason and, and terrorism and, and things like that, which I think is consistent with their argument. But generally speaking, I think the whole idea of the allowing the best ideas to come to the surface to be debated allowing poor ideas to come to the surface and be debated and rejected is, is a very telling one. And it's what's really been underpinned by the, I think, by the European Enlightenment from sort of the 18th century onwards, is that idea that we should, you know, debate ideas. Yeah. Uh, and what was it, the community of letters or, or something like that, that, you know, scientists had in, the, in, in Europe in the, in the 18th century in particular – was uh, the community letters was just was hugely important. These people were swapping ideas across principalities and things like that. And, uh, and no internet in through. those days. So. No, and they'd be delivered, <laughs> and then they'd be debated, and they'd come backward and forth. And you know, the Royal Society and those sort of things in the UK would debate these ideas, and the best ideas would win out. I yeah. think
2: w- one of my one of my rejoinders to people like Posner w- would be, how confident do they feel that they can calculate the true cost of of restricting Speech. And I mean, I, I suppose my personal view is that it's fundamental to democracy and liberal society. And so, if you start putting restrictions on it beyond the very necessary, like banning threats of violence and so on, you may risk bringing unstuck the very foundation of liberal economics and liberal democracy.
0: I don't disagree with all that, but I would view what they were doing as part of a slightly different project. So if I read David Friedman, it's more that he wants to avoid begging the question that you shouldn't just bring in by assumption that these things are inviolable and everything else is subject to cost benefit. Like He he even asks whether murder should be illegal, right? You shouldn't just presume that murder should be illegal. Well, think about the gains to the murderer. Think about the losses (laughs) to the person who's murdered and to everybody else who's worried about being murdered. If you start from the presumption that some things should be legal and some things should be illegal, then you're you've, you've kind of begged the question. He wants to bring it all back into the framework, and any reasonable analysis you'd hope would show that murder is bad, and restrictions on freedom of speech are bad, and your work has helped to show that. Yeah. So and that's my, great. Well,
1: And I think where they would probably come to, and where I would be, is, is that most restrictions on freedom of speech are bad. You know, there are still yep. very isolated examples where you think, "Yep, no, that passes the test that Coast or somebody would would." would put there. And, you know, and fair enough. But my own view is that they're very few and far between.
0: So I guess one bit that I took also from the paper, you pointed out that about 7% of the world's population gets to live under regimes with freedom of speech. And about two thirds of the world have zero freedom of speech. So we're in a somewhat privileged position here. And we should not let that erode is one lesson that I take from it. Any concluding comments from our guest and from Michael?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's a scary statistic, the one you've just talked about. It's just the vast number of people throughout the world that live in countries where freedom of speech is not allowed and, and you know, and a large number who is only partially allowed and then for whom and, and on what. So for me, it's a very special thing that we have. I was brought up in a, you know, essentially a left-wing household that supported Amnesty International and all these sorts of wonderful organisations. And I think that that whole idea that, to make sure that people lead the best lives that they can lead, they need to be able to make their views known, and that's freedom of speech.
2: And I think it's a wonderful piece of work you've done. As somebody who defends free speech on principled grounds, it's great to see some really pragmatic reasons for, the, for it as well.
0: well. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael, Arthur, and thank you, listeners. Tune in next time. We'll see you then.